0: Week number five of Explaining Christianity. Let me begin uh, with the word of prayer and then we'll get into our lesson for today. Lord, we thank You for this time that we can come together. We thank You for Your Word and how it instructs us. We pray that You'd help us to be sensitive to it. Um, Help us to think rightly about Your truth so that we can live in in a... in agreement with and in obedience to it, we pray that we would come away people who are changed and more, um, more excited and more interested in loving you the way that we ought to. Pray that you'd give us help now through your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. What is a Christian? Or to put it another way, let's try to 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 finish this sentence. A Christian is someone who what? Follows Christ, okay. Any other ideas? A Christian is someone who, okay, someone who has accepted Christ. What do you suppose the world would would say to that? To that question, a Christian is someone who what? Goes to church, okay. They'd have a whole list of. Of uh, rules or regulations that uh, a person should should avoid, and, it, and that person is is who they would see as a Christian. But to to complete this sentence the way that Jesus would, we need to go back to the Gospel of Mark. And we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark to try to understand what is what a Christian is, what is the foundation for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's review before we get into this week's. Lesson. We we summarized the first three weeks with what image? The stool. Okay. I thought my my kids were going to draw one on the board for us, but they didn't do that for us. So we'll have to go without today. The stool, in in very simple terms, helps us to understand that there's three components. All three of them must be there in order for us to understand the gospel. What is the first one? That Jesus is whom is who Jesus is God Jesus is the son of God that was the very first one we have to understand that very basic truth that basically said that Jesus is God's divine son and that he has complete authority he has authority over all these things we saw that he had authority over sin we had he has authority over healing he has authority over people he has authority over teachers Uh, Jesus has the authority. So, Jesus is the Son of God. The second leg reminds us of what? Or what was the second leg? Jesus is who? The crucified. It reminds us that He, He made a payment for us. That He died on the cross. That He bore the punishment of our sins. And we could simply call it this, that He was our substitute. So, first, He is our authority. And then secondly, He's our substitute. And thirdly, we saw that Jesus is the resurrected. That is, He has the power over sin and death. And His resurrection proved that. So that's our stool, the foundation that the true biblical Christianity rests upon. So with this foundation laid, we've decided that we need to now turn to what what do we need to do in order to accept this true gospel? What is it that we need to do? And we started out last week talking about what, it, what salvation means. The first aspect of salvation that we looked at was that salvation is of grace, not works. It's not whether you go to church or not. It's not whether you've done a certain number of things, said a number of prayers, whatever. Salvation has to do with grace. That, that it comes from God. That, that God is the one who, who provides salvation through His grace. So that was last week. Now, we are going to learn this week that the first aspect of Christianity, what what does a Christian look like? Turn with me to Mark chapter one, verse 15. Mark chapter one, verse 15. Let's start in verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In this verse, verse, we have the very first words recorded by Mark of Jesus Christ during His ministry. So, in one sentence, we could fundamentally say that a Christian is someone who belongs to the kingdom of God. Notice the first part of that verse 15 the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand Jesus went about preaching the kingdom and we know that uh, during the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ we will be a part of that kingdom that is all those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their savior will be a part of that kingdom so we could say that that those who are Christians are people of the kingdom so based on this verse how would we describe someone who is a part of that kingdom? Look at the end of the verse. What does it say there? Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are the two aspects of Christianity. Those are the two aspects that we have to adopt, that we have to, we could say, do in order to accept the gift of salvation. In order to believe the good news, we have to repent of our sins. And we have to believe the good news. So that, those are the two aspects that we're going to look at this week and next week. Next week we'll have a guest speaker, Dave Smith, but he'll he'll continue the study for you. And he'll talk about the believing aspect of salvation. But this week we're going to look at the repenting aspect. So what is repentance? Repentance is not a, a, a word that we use regularly today. It doesn't really show up in our society very much. But is repentance the same thing as being sorry? Is it merely a feeling or an emotion? Or is it something more? Consider the case when a child is caught with his hand in the cookie jar or hitting his sister or whatever. Um, the, The child might cry out, I'm sorry, please don't punish me. Please don't spank me. Or... Um, you know, if you're in a parent, you, you've been in these situations before where they have these pleas, even comes with tears because they recognize that there's punishment to come. But ultimately, this is a false kind of repentance. It's not a repentance because they're really sorry. It's, it's a repentance because they, they're fearful of punishment. So that's not true repentance. On the other hand, you might have a child do that same act and then say, please don't spank me. Instead, I'll do the dishes for a week. Okay? that that's all good, and maybe we might take them up on that but that's actually not repentance that's penance okay you find this a lot in in our society that's penance that's paying for what we've done see i I, I have done something wrong yes but but ultimately i can I can pay for that by what I do that's penance now Mark describes the attitude of one who is truly repentance in mark chapter eight turn with me there. Mark chapter 8. Because I want to show you the picture of what repentance looks like. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Can someone read for me verses 34 and 35? Thanks, Trish. Okay, so what picture of repentance do we have in verse 34? What picture do we have? It says, if anyone would come after me, he must do what? Deny himself. That's the picture of repentance. It's it's a denial of self. It's it's uh, recognizing that that what we do cannot ultimately pay for what we've done. It's a recognition of Christ, that only Christ can, can respond rightly to our problem. We need to re- recognize that repentance ultimately presumes sin, that there has been sin that has taken place. If we don't understand ourselves as sinful people, then we won't understand uh, what it means to repent. I mean, we won't really care about turning from our sins, which is what repentance is, we'll see later. We won't care about denying ourselves because we don't really see ourselves as sinful. And so we had a picture that we looked at in, in uh, lesson two when we were looking at Jesus the Crucified, and that was that we were in bondage to sin. We were shackled by sin. We were in chains. We were helpless before God. We could do nothing because God hates sin and will judge it. But we have Christ who is our ransom, who was our substitute, who took us out of those uh, chains, out of bondage. And the way that we accept this gift of Jesus Christ is through repentance. This is one of the ways that we accept it, through repentance. So true repentance involves not just a fear of punishment. It doesn't involve a, a repayment of what for what we have done. Rather, it has to do with having a deep remorse of having offended God, let me read for you from Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse ten. Paul says, "Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death." Now, a lot of people are sorry for what they've done. A lot of people are um, have remorse for what they've done, but but a lot of people are not truly saved as well. A godly sorrow leads to repentance. It it leads to a turning from our sins. And one who is truly repentant does not justify himself or say, you know, you know, everybody else is doing it, or or I I'm much better than this person. But rather, he recognizes the wrong that he's done and takes the 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 restitution that God has given um, for him. So it involves. A turning. It involves a recognition of our guilt, of our standing before God. And um, so we need to, to recognize that. So put simply, repentance is to put Christ first in all aspects of our lives. It's to put Christ first. You, you see that worldly sorrow does not put Christ first, do they? See, they're trying to remove this guilt that they, they have. And And ultimately, it doesn't work. Again, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, writing to the Christians in the city that he had never visited. He tells them how he has heard from others about how they became Christians. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 says, They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He has raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see, the first part of that verse says that They have turned to God from idols. That is exactly what repentance is. It's turning away from what we've been following to God. To God from idols. It wasn't simply, oh, we feel really guilty and we have to figure out a way to get rid of this guilt and this shame that we have. No, it was a recognition that they have offended a holy God and that they have themselves put upon Christ the payment that they should have taken. The Westminster the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes repentance like this. Repentance unto life is saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Okay, so it's basically putting Christ first over all things. And that's why you see on your handout there that we're going to look at how repentance puts Christ first. First of all, we see that repentance puts Christ first even before our will. Look at verse 34 and 35 again. For whoever... uh, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. So, in denying ourselves, and taking up our cross and losing our life, Jesus is saying we must give up or die to the right to run our own lives. We must put Christ first. So let me give you an illustration to help help you see this. Okay, when you move into a house, there's a lot of things that have to happen in order for you to move in, but there's only one move in day. Okay? You have a, a move in day and then from then on the rest of the time that you spend in that house is basically remodeling and redecoration. Okay, you have different rooms that you want to fix up to make them look better. Okay, we could, we could um, compare that to our salvation. Okay, our salvation is like the move-in day. It's a one-time thing. It happens. It's done. It's, it's final. But then we have this aspect of sanctification where God is continually making us more like Christ and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in and takes the rooms and remodels them. The, these are problems, okay? These are eyesores. We've got to get rid of them. We have to adjust them. We have to, to change them. And that's, that's the idea of, of, um, of sanctification. It is a changing of our hearts. So we have many rooms that represent our life. We have our jobs. We have our family. We have our recreation, our money, our marriage, our desires, and the Holy Spirit is not content to stand in the entryway of our house and say all right good I'm glad I'm in your house on this moving day no he he needs to get in there and shake things up okay things need to be changed when you become a believer um, it doesn't just happen that you're all of a sudden you're 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 perfect obviously okay what happens at at salvation is what we call the new birth you have now become, um, you you now have the right standing before God. Yes, but you've also been able to uh, take on Christ's righteousness, and you have a new nature. Remember, old things are passed away; behold, all things are become new. Now you have the ability to say yes to God. Before you did not. Okay, so that's where the Holy Spirit's going to work in in your life, Trish. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now everything's going to be fine. Yep. And that's not the way it is. It's a constant, it's a constant changing and that's why every time we come to church each week, each service, we should be looking to change something. There should should be something in our lives that that is not where it should be. And um, if once we get to a place where we don't need to change, then we won't be alive. okay? We won't be in this life. So the point should be clear. When I become a Christian, I must be willing for Jesus not just to be Lord of my salvation, not just to enter into the door, but to be Lord of all. The whole thing. God, I give it all up to You. You are first. Not just because I want to have an escape from hell in order to get all the gifts that You've promised me. No. i I am giving to you myself, my life. That's why Jesus says you have to give up your, take up your cross. Willing to deny yourself, that's what it's all about. It's about giving Christ everything. So when we repent, we turn from sin and we surrender our lives, our will to the God-given right of Jesus to be our King. Alright, any questions on Jesus Christ or at, on uh, putting Christ first even before our will? All right, let's turn to our ambition. Putting Christ first before our ambitions. Look at verse thirty six of chapter eight. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here we see that to put Christ first means to place him above even our ambitions. Now throughout history, people have been laboring to gain the whole world. They've been trying to figure out a way they can put themselves in power over the world, where they can gain enough money so that they can buy what they want. And to a small or large degree, the aim is basically to accumulate power or money or popularity, prestige, some type of business success. But has that changed any now here in the 21st century? Is that something that's just something that's been done in the past? Or is that kind of mentality still going on? Now, these things are not wrong in and of themselves. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be popular, necessarily. It's not wrong to have power. But they can become wrong. For example, money is not inherently wrong to have money, right? Money can be a very good thing, but when we begin to lust after it, when we begin to put money first, we could say, in our lives, the pursuit of money, then that does become a problem because First Timothy 6.10 6, says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say for money is the root of all evil. It says for the love of money, the pursuit of all these things to the exclusion of God. That's wrong. So, when we put Christ first, we're putting Him before our will and we're putting Him before our carnal or worldly ambitions. We're putting Him first over all the things that that we would uh, want in life before we came to Christ. So, there was a time in your life when you were pursuing something other than God and, His righteous, and the righteousness that comes through Christ. There was a time. But that should change once the Holy Spirit takes that first step into your house. Okay, that should change. You, you are willing to put those ambitions aside. Before, I wanted to conquer the world. Before, I wanted to have all these great things. Now, those things aren't as important. The most important thing is that Christ is satisfied with me. That's the most important thing. So, we're willing to put aside some of those dreams, some of those ambitions that we had in order to satisfy, in order to please, Christ any questions or comments on putting Christ before our ambitions all right let's move to the next one putting Christ first before our reputation someone read for me verse 38 Bob?
1: for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels.
0: Okay, so in this verse, Jesus clearly warns that those who would place their own reputation before Christ are people who are not truly repentant, because in repentance, we're called to put Christ first even before our reputation. Sometimes putting Christ first is not easy. In fact, in verse 34, Jesus tells us that we have to deny ourselves, that if anyone wishes to come after, we must deny himself and take up our cross. I mean, taking up the cross in that day was not a beautiful picture. That was a sign of suffering and death and humiliation. And so at times, it may be a burden to follow Christ. But if we're going to be faithful, it may not be popular. This is how one writer put it, John Stott. He says, Either we are unfaithful, in order to be popular or we look unpopular in order to be fa- faithful we can't be both can't be both faithful and popular you have to choose what do you want would you do you care more about your or how people perceive you your reputation do you care more about that than you care about christ do you care more about being faithful or do you care more about being popular you have to choose because if you care more about being popular, then you're going to put aside Christ's commandments. You're going to determine that, that, hey, those are good and everything. They may be good for somebody else, but not for me because my goal is for people to see me in a certain light. We must not be ashamed of Jesus in this life because as verse 38 says, that if we are ashamed of Him now, it proves that we are never part of His family and he'll He'll ultimately be ashamed of us. Meaning, we we have no part with him. Depart from me, that idea. He he never knew you. So so in, in keeping with this uh, principle, we have to understand that there's no such thing as a secret disciple. We're called to publicly follow, and that may mean reproach to us. That may mean humiliation. That may mean people look down on us or call us names. That may mean that people give us a funny look when we bring up our Christ, our Lord. But are we willing to do that for the sake of Christ? Have we put, have we put Christ first before our reputation? Alright, any questions or comments on that? That's definitely one of the harder ones that that we see. I mean, you see this in in grade school, even with kids trying to determine whether or not they should follow after Christ, or should they should they try to gain the approval of people. And you, you find that in the New Testament throughout, especially the Pharisees, with they're they're more concerned about the approval of people than than to follow after God. And that's a very common thing even among Christians. Mark.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. 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 Yeah, I think the point there is that we should allow we should allow the gospel to be offensive to people. We shouldn't be personally. Okay. If people are offended, they should be offended at what we believe, not at the way that we act. Some people are, you know, in your in your face type thing just believe you better believe or else i mean obviously that's not what christ is calling us to and you you never saw him do that um in a situation the only time you saw him get very angry was when they they um we had the people selling things inside the temple court which was meant to be a place of worship so um you didn't find jesus going why don't you believe and, and forcing it down their throat, so it's it's a combination I think of both um a uh, a wise and a a faithful serving type life and a faithful witness okay a lot of times we hear this thing um, or you may have heard this phrase that um, give the gospel with your give the gospel and use your mouth if you have to um which suggests that, you know, we can just give the gospel with, with our lives. Now, that is part of it. Okay, that, that does give integrity to what we're trying to say, because if our lives don't match up with what we're trying to tell people, it's pointless. But you cannot ultimately give someone the gospel with your life. Someone cannot be saved by just watching your life. The gospel comes through propositional truth, that is real words. Okay? Faith comes by what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Okay, It comes through real words. It, it, it has to be a combination of both words and a, and a genuine spiritual life. Now, that doesn't mean perfect. I mean, obviously they recognize, hopefully they recognize that, that we are not perfect as Christians, but that we are genuine, that we deeply care about Christ. And so that should reflect in the way that we live. And that ultimately requires discernment. That requires a lot of discernment sometimes it's hard to tell when we should give the gospel and when we should step back when we should be forceful and when we when we should uh, when we should uh, back away you know we, we deal with this every week when we go out on visitation you know um, you've heard of people who will not leave this person's house where they go into the door and they, they they got their foot in the door you know that analogy the foot in the door thing they've got it in there now they can't close it because I'm going to give it to you whether you like it or not. So that's difficult to, to, to draw the line. When do they need the gospel? When do they, we need to give it to them? And when do we back away? It's, it's difficult to, to understand, but that ultimately comes down to discernment. So to summarize this entire passage in chapter 8, we need to put Christ before our will. We need to put Him before our ambition. And we need to put Him before our reputation. Now that's not all repentance involves, but these are the main components of putting Christ first in all things. Because those ruled by sin, according to its very nature, we we they they look to themselves, that is we look to ourselves because we are sinners. Instead, as Christians, we look to Christ first. It's not about ultimately pleasing us, it's about pleasing Christ. It's a completely different thing than than when we were unbelievers. So, Next, putting Christ first before our pride. Turn over to chapter 9. Can I get a volunteer to read verses 34 through 38? Chapter 9, 43. Did I? 34 to 38 to 40. What do I have there? 43 to 48, excuse me. I guess I'm a little bit less dicksick. All right. Mark chapter 9, verses 43-48. through 48. Would someone like to read that for me? Bob?
1: If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire does, is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched.
0: Okay, one thing that we should be able to recognize, should be pretty obvious in this verse, is that one, Christ believes in hell, doesn't He? He he says that you will be cast into hell Okay He also believes in a not only a literal hell, but also an eternal hell. Look at verse 46, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. That has to do with eternity. that has to do with an eternal torment. So Christ believes in literal hell. this is uh, This is opposed to a lot of what what is taught today. Okay, or what is emphasized? If you watch a lot of these guys on on TV, you'll you'll notice that they do talk, um, they they do bring in the scriptures to what they're teaching. But what they do, they they do it to the exclusion of a lot of times sin and hell. They don't want to talk about those things. They talk about all the great benefits of salvation instead of talking about that we are a sinner and are in opposition to God, instead of talking about all that, they move right on to all the blessings that we can have through salvation. And they talk about, uh, you've heard the best life now, that type of thing. I mean, there's no talk of hell. There's no talk of of sin. There's no talk of the exclusivity of the Christian religion. That is, that, that Jesus Christ is the only way. There's no talk of that. Because that that can be a little bit offensive, and they they want to what Paul would say tickle people's ears, give them what they want to hear, and then they'll keep coming back. But that's ultimately not what real repentance is about. It's about turning from sin. That's why I said that that it's actually it presumes that we understand what sin is. So back to our passage, we are um, trying to see that putting Christ first should even mean that we're willing to put him before our pride. And ultimately what Jesus is saying is not that we need to cut off literal body parts in order to make it to heaven. Okay, the people with the fewest limbs are going to make it to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that even if it requires radical surgery, it would be better for you to to, to have that surgery done than to spend an eternity in hell. Okay? Let let's think of it this way. Suppose you had a death grip on some thing in this world. Something that you wanted more than anything. You had a death grip on it. Jesus is saying, listen, do you want your whole body, okay, including that death grip and that thing that you enjoy, do you want that whole thing to go in hell? Or would you rather have your hand cut off and you just go in with a limb? What would be better? It's that simple. Okay, That doesn't mean we have to cut off the body parts that are causing us to sin. The point is is that we should be willing to give up anything and put Christ first. Mark? Um, I don't no, I, I don't really have a good answer for that right now. I'd have to get back to you on that. Um I'd have to I'd have to actually study that out, but um I, I've heard some different um, interpretations of what that has to do with, but I'd have to just study it to give you a, a legitimate answer. Do you have? I
1: heard when we, I think we talked about this in the snow class, yeah, oh, it, was, was, it was compared that uh, they were like worms and they didn't have, you know, they couldn't move around, so they were just like stuck there. And they couldn't, so they didn't have like limbs. They were just mm.
0: Okay, it's kind of maybe a helpless condition, a, uh, a place in which, you know, obviously when we have limbs, we, we use them for things. It, that, that seems to make sense. I'd have to look at that a little bit more carefully, but that's a good question. Okay, so Jesus is, is ultimately um, saying that we need to be willing to give up our pride. Are we too pride, too proud to accept salvation as a gift? I mean, do we think that we can stand before Christ on our own merit and say and expect him to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, based on what you've done. Do we think that we can do that? Because ultimately it comes down to the merit of Jesus Christ. And this verse is this passage here is 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 intended to unsettle us, to tell us that listen Jesus cares very deeply about those who follow him and he demands a lot from those who follow him. That doesn't mean that you've earned what you've uh received. That all that means is that it it requires a a completely submissive life, one in which we recognize that Christ is our Lord, that he is Lord over everything. So let's um Let's finish up here. Uh, This next point is, is it too hard? Look at Mark chapter 10. Verse 29. Is it too hard? 10.29 says, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for My sake and for the Gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now In the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and childrens and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So, is it too hard? All this talk of submission, we seems like how can we do this? Now, Jesus doesn't promise that the Christian life is going to be easy. That's why He says you need to take up your cross. You have to be willing to deny yourself. But at the same time, Christianity is not a crutch. In fact, We have promises in Scripture that talk about the persecution that we will receive because of our association with Christ. So, we may think, well, well, that's great. What's so special about the Gospel then? Where's the good news? Well, consider two promises from Jesus Christ. First of all, He will repay us a hundred times for our hardships. This is quite a promise. He will repay us a hundred times. And then number two, in the next life, He will give us eternal life. Okay? Now all we have is eternal death. We have eternal punishment. That's what we deserve. But now Christ will not only give us eternal life, He will pay us back a hundred times for, for any hardship that we have received on this earth. And that would be what we should consider worthy of suffering for. If, if we ultimately look to the final prize, what Christ has ultimately offered, what who He is, what He's done, what He offers, then we should count our lives worthy to suffer for His sake. Alright, so we began with the question, what is a Christian? We learned from Mark chapter 1, verse 14 that a Christian is someone who repents and believes. And this repentance is um, involves putting Christ first. First, as you see there on your sheet. Turning from sin. Okay, that's the, that's the turning part. And then trusting in Him. And then traveling with Him. That is, continuing allow, it's a continual repentance. It's a continually allowing of, of Christ to take over our lives to be the most important things. The, the question that ultimately Jesus is answering is, will you put me first? Let's consider this uh, final promise and I'll read it for you from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. He says, "...Come to Me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light." How can His yoke be easy and His burden be light? when we have to go through so much suffering. The only way that it can is when is when we fix our eyes on the final prize. When we recognize that our lives in comparison to eternity are nothing. It's like a vapor that vanishes away. It's, it's nothing. So will you put Christ first? Alright, next week, let me give you a little bit of a head start on what... Will um, will be I think a benefit to you as you do the study for next week, which is on faith. By uh, reading Mark chapter one verse eight, chapter two verse ten, and chapter ten verse thirty. Okay, these are just three verses. But what I want you to do as you're reading through those is to ask this question: What gifts does God promise to those who repent and believe? Okay, simple. What gifts does God promise to those repent who repent and believe? Read those three verses and come back with um, those answers because I think Dave's going to ask those of you. Let's uh, pray and we will be dismissed. Lord, thank You for Jesus Christ and the payment that He made on our behalf. We certainly deserved all of the wrath that our sin warranted. But Jesus Christ stood in our place and He took that upon Himself. And we feel so unworthy of your grace and yet you give it to it, you give it to us so freely not because of anything that we've done but because of your great mercy and i pray that you would shine that mercy on thousands of people in our area who need to hear the gospel who need to be changed by it who are searching endlessly for ways in which they can be satisfied in this life ways in which they can have answers to their questions and Lord, we know that ultimately they cannot be satisfied until they are satisfied in Jesus Christ. We pray that You'd help us to share that message with the people around us. Help us to live that message. Help us not to be people who are simply here on Sunday in all of our best clothes and, and uh, our best attitudes and our, and our on our best behavior, but people who really genuinely care about the Gospel of Jesus Christ and are willing to put Christ first in everything, whether it be our ambitions, our will, our reputation, or our pride. Help us, Lord. We need Your Spirit to be able to do these things. We pray that You'd help us also, that we would give You the praise for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.